Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed, what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. I'm Tim. And I'm Tay. What's going on, movie fans, horror fans, October fans? We're here for you. Uh, Kicking back with another Craven movie this week. Welcome to our episode on uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Yeah, absolutely. Welcome back. Uh, This is installment three for the month. Uh, We had a bonus episode last week, but this is our second Craven one. As voted by you, the the listeners, and Tay, I I can't say I was very surprised when uh, when everyone picked this one. Were you? No. uh, We did kind of debate whether we should put this in or just put a new nightmare in just to throw everybody off with all Mm. the less, less obvious Craven movies, but... You know what? I'm happy we get to talk about this one. It is just such a stone-cold classic. Yeah, I mean, sometimes with these kind of votes, I think we do try to suggest some things that maybe people haven't seen or that maybe we'll find a, a hidden contingent of people that love a specific movie. We're, we're looking at you, uh, Paul Schrader fans out there who didn't get First Reformed in last month. But Yeah, uh, that's sorry okay. about I'm that, sure. fans of that. We'll, we'll come back to that. But, I mean, if we're talking horror, like... At a certain point, we got to talk about Freddy, right? Seriously, it's only a matter of time before we have to cross off all the major slasher flicks, so why not now? We're talking about Craven this month. This is obviously Craven's biggest film that he ever made, so uh, mm-hmm. in terms of profitability, I think as much as its reputation, I'm not positive on that, though. He might have had a more profitable mm. movie at some point. Uh, something may have been more profitable. I feel like Scream is, in a way, like... It's a higher profile franchise, but Freddy is like, you know, he's in the Holy Trinity, right? Like you had Michael Myers in 1978 with Halloween. You had, I mean, I'll put this in quotation marks, uh, Jason in 1980. Um, uh, Not technically Jason as we covered two weeks ago. Because, yeah, what year did the second Friday the 13th come out when Jason actually shows up? think it might be the same year as this isn't it is it is it 84 or part two is if not it's a little earlier part two is 81 okay so okay. yeah you had and then in 84 you had freddy which i think you would call them the you know as i said the holy trinity of like horror boogeymen yeah i would agree with that who else would you even be able to put in other than the i mean the classic monsters are a thing of their own. yeah leatherface i guess but he doesn't fit the same bill in terms of personality yeah and i mean like that i think that's I think in general, it's great that we get to talk about Freddy because like when you look into the production of this, and I think when you take the movie at face value, all this whole thing is a mess. The fact that <laughs> it worked out, the fact that it became one of the most iconic horror uh, villains ever is a pretty long shot, as, as you'll see. Um, right? Like, uh, I don't even know where to begin pulling this apart but i guess like just in case anyone if we have i i assume we probably have a couple people who are listening to these horror episodes and not watching the movies because they're not horror fans and this is 100 percent like a classic slasher it's spooky it, it you know if you catch a bit of this on tv as a kid it'll give you nightmares so i understand so we'll just lay some of the groundwork to start i think uh for for especially those viewers and or listeners and anyone who hasn't watched the movie yet Uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street uh, concerns a group of teenagers that are plagued by a recurring nightmare in which they are pursued by a badly burned man with knives for fingers. Their fear turns to horror when they realize this boogeyman can hurt them for real. Starring Heather Langenkamp and Robert Englund and directed by Wes Craven, A Nightmare on Elm Street was released November 16th, 1984. It's available to rent online. Um, And I think 
maybe we can just mention that the budget for this movie is 1.1 million. It did go over by a bit, as I understand it, um, but not by too much, but a little, like an absolutely tiny budget, all things considered, and it made 57 million at the box office. Yeah, and like you were kind of alluding to before, this was like the perfect concoction of things that maybe shouldn't have gone together, but because of the uh, the direction, I'm guessing, played a huge role. Uh, we don't know that for certain, but Craven seems to have been able to generate a lot of ma- a lot of magic in his career out of nothing. So mm-hmm. I think we have to attribute some of it to Craven. But his crew apparently worked so hard to make this a low budget experience that they could actually then make a like a pretty high caliber film with the budget they had. Uh, yep. There was all these all these mentions of working for guild minimums at the time. Uh, incredibly small crew especially the effects team which was incredibly overworked but yet they came in a little over budget like you said but still under i heard that the final total was still under two million somewhere and the fact that you gross 57 million just uh really reflects the success of this model at the time but uh just coming back to the main topic here a Nightmare on Elm Street is just a mess of inspirations that Craven had, and then it took many years to actually get this film made. So let's start maybe diving into mm-hmm. what kind of led to this. Yeah, so he was inspired, like Craven at the time, I believe he was teaching. Um, he was coming off of a uh, Making the Swamp Thing TV movie, which is not great, and I say that as a massive Swamp Thing fan, unfortunately, but most all of the visual adaptations uh, or cinematic or TV adaptations. Swamp Thing are no good. That's a real tangent. I'm going to get away from it right now. Um, <laughs> his marriage was falling apart. Like, he was in a great place, but he had, he had read these articles in the LA Times about Hmong re- refugees um, who uh, fled to the United States because of war and genocide in uh, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, and they were all suffering disturbing nightmares and refused to sleep. At the same time, I had read that, like, there's this other article that he read about a little boy who was suffering from very vivid nightmares and died in his sleep, which they, they think was some sort of instant death syndrome case. Um, but I think I think Craven, you know, on the on the hunt, because he'd already done uh, The Hills Have Eyes and stuff like that. He wasn't new to the horror genre necessarily. But on the hunt and for, like, another great... Yeah. On the hunt for another great core concept i think he came upon one like again i talked about so often it's something where when you hear it you're like oh that's obvious but of course doing the work beforehand to arrive at that is is where it really counts and he happened upon this idea that what if you were afraid to sleep what if you were afraid to do something that is so fundamental to our experience and tapping into when that does happen when you're a kid and you've woken up from a nightmare and the last thing you want is to go to sleep and re-enter the same nightmare um it's just something that everyone can relate to, right? It's not a unique experience. It has nothing to do with who the main characters are, what class they come from, what race they are, what gender they are, what age they are. Even though, I mean, the age of the characters is important to uh, to this story and to Craven. But just that that nugget of being afraid to go to sleep is um, it's evergreen and it's uh, it's it's immediately accessible. Yeah, I think in general, horror fans share the belief that when you can relate to the characters or the concept of a horror film, it makes it actually, it transcends just being a movie and it actually is what makes things scary. I think there's a, also a general group of people who just can't do horror movies who are just kind of scared by the idea of being scared and mm-hmm. don't enter into the realm of horror films. But in general, most people I talk to about what 
actually a scary about horror movies, most people will revert back to the answer, something that I can personally relate to, something where I can feel myself in the shoes of that character in that moment. That's what's actually scary. And the fact that this whole premise is based upon the dreamscape about not wanting to go back to sleep is so mm-hmm. brilliant. And it's relatively simple in its premise. In execution, this could be a total mess though, right? And yeah. I think what we see here is just a perfect imagination to handle this, which is Craven's, of course. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think like where you go from there is you have this core idea and you're like, okay, there's tons of aspects of cinema that, that can really support this idea where you have seamless cuts in between reality and when people are sleeping, you know, if you just don't show the person falling asleep. So you can always have this idea that you're not sure if you're, if the audience is watching someone in the dream or in the real world. Um, And then of course, like the way that you light scenes, the way that you edit them, the way you have people move, all these things can sort of touch on. Yeah. Yeah. All these things can sort of touch on the way that we feel about our dreams and feel in dreams. But I think the big hurdle then is who's your bad guy what what is what is this like core sort of um facet of dreams who's this boogeyman and how do you design them and by all accounts it's you take a whole bunch of different stuff so there's craven will tell a story about when he was just very unnerved by he's looking out a window into an alley and a man walked by and just sort of like turned and made eye contact with him and it was just sort of like the idea there you know well, that sounds um, like every modern horror movie's first scare. Yeah, right? But, like, then, you know, he's got a red and green sweater, and Craven said it was, like, he, he read in an article that it was, like, those are the, those colors clash the most. Even though it's, like, I think, you know, they're opposite on the on the color wheel. They're, you know, they're whatever. They're, they're complementary colors, but, you know, it's a bit of a goofy look, and he's got the tattered hat, and then he's also got like the finger knives you know where it's like oh yeah okay so he's got like an iconic tool um and then also i mean i think one of the one of the processes i was able to read into with the most detail is that in comparison to mike my michael myers and jason having their sort of rigid masks which are not nevertheless creepy and unsettling they can't express. They have no personality, and that's kind of why they're scary. They're more the Terminator side of the villain yeah. spectrum than they are any of, like, you know, the Hans Gruber side, let's say, villain with personality. Due to the Nakatomi Corporation's legacy of greed around the globe, they're about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power. Um, but, uh, so he came upon the idea of, like, you know, what if Freddy's a burn victim? He can have this disgusting scary face but he can grimace and he can growl and he can talk and he can smirk his eyes moving and stuff like that and uh and then you you just throw one more thing into the mix which is robert england who i guess you know he had had some success being like a likable character on the v series that that based on that book series about like aliens coming to earth Um, oh wow i didn't realize he was in the original of that that's cool. yeah but he but he came up for this and i guess like on the way to the audition he just he employed a couple like um you know like old tricks that like actors would use where like he he put like cigarette ash underneath his eyes and he slicked back his hair with some oil and then he just came in and act like super sullen and creepy and then he says and I love this he said he just posed like Klaus Kinski um and that sort of just got him the job right <laughs> and and I think you can feel it every step of the way Craven being like uh let's throw this at the wall let's throw this at the wall Let's see what we get. And you get this hodgepodge of like iconography and ideas 
that somehow just in action it it works it, it becomes a character and that's a real alchemical process i think yeah to me because it it, it does bounce a bit all over and it works for this movie but you can see uh, a bit more precision in the direction and tone in some of the other craven works with freddy mm -hmm. so yeah. i think they were working to figure out exactly what freddy is in this first movie much like they did with jason through the friday the 13th franchise where they kind of had to figure out the beats of this character and what mm -hmm. the memorable parts and the scary parts of this character were going to be for audiences and then they really ride those hard until the end of that franchise yeah. Whereas, whereas, you know, some, like a character like Michael Myers, I think he was pretty figured out. He's pretty well established because so much of what he is, is a void. He doesn't have a voice or a personality. You can hear him breathing, but like it was almost more, it was way more of a vibe of a character. You know, the shape being it, the idea that he's just, he's kind of a Terminator. He just keeps going. If anything, um, he gets worse as the movies go in terms of like the more you learn about him, the less intimidating he becomes. Yes. The, yes. I, him as, I think him Jason as an absence and Freddy of, are different. of information is way more way more compelling. Yeah. Whereas Freddy, yeah, I think you're right. Like he, they establish him more as he goes on, which gives this sort of like a very charming, rough edge to this whole movie. Because I I honestly believe like there's some acting, there's some editing, there's some directing in this movie that I think is objectively like terrible, right? <laughs> and I think that that like adds. That adds to the experience now, because you're like, well, I know I'm, I know I'm watching a Freddy movie. There's, it's a classic for a reason. But like, you know, Heather Langenkamp, she was, she was in Stanford at the time and was sort of taking time off to pursue acting, and she'd been in some commercials. I don't think she's great, right? You know, I, I mean, I she got, wasn't like, in that I many she, movies. And that's the thing. So right now she's in Mike Flanagan's latest Netflix horror show, Midnight oh, no Club. Way. Funny. Still not great. I gotta, gotta be honest. Like an iconic scream queen. I I've nothing against her. I don't want this to. But like taken taken at face value as as an actor, you know, not great. I also you know uh, actually we'll get to another actor in this in a second. But another thing I wanted to throw sort of in the production dis discussion that we're doing is the other thing was that. This is sort of like New Line Cinema's biggest hit. So this is these are the people who distributed uh, Lord of the Rings. Um, they 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 call them or they were called the house that Freddy built because essentially so Bob Shea who ran New Line Cinemas out of his apartment to start he just as he understood his dad was in wholesale food distribution and someone was like hey film distribution's big business he's like oh I understand food distribution how hard could it be and he was the first guy to distribute uh distribute john waters uh Werner herzog and he took a chance on this script from craven as well because i guess most people were turning it down yeah for like eight um, years craven peddled yeah. the script around hollywood and no one gave him anything for it i guess bob shea really liked the concept and then really had to fight craven to let him see the script i think Cra it's reading between the lines sound like craven lost um, faith in the script because every time he showed it to someone who could maybe get it produced they were like now nah, we're good right which must be frustrating when you think you're like but guys like the concept is 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 killer it's fantastic it's you're afraid to go to sleep because someone's gonna murder you in your sleep and you'll die for real like how could that not have legs and then you give them the script and they're like yeah we're good so, it almost seemed like the to me it seems like the industry might not have been ready for the concept yet but mm. at the same time, it very well could have been the salesmanship of Craven and his script, uh, or I should say maybe the sell the sellability of his script 
because maybe it wasn't very strong. It, it is thing. weird I, that I don't, conceptually like this, this was turned away yeah. for so long. Not 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 to complain about our, our schedule here on SSC, but this is the kind of thing where with a little bit more time I would have taken a peek at the script and see what's there. Uh, all I really have to go on is, yeah, that tons of people turn the script down. Mimi Craven, uh, Wes's next wife after this, I think, or like... Maybe his previous marriage had just fallen apart and he was with Mimi. She said it was a wonderful script, even though it was a horror film, which I, I think is a nice sort of backhanded compliment. And and let you know, again, <laughs> what people sort of thought about horror movies at the time. Well, um, yeah, we kind of talked about that when we talked about Cronenberg. Like, it's kind of it was dirty business doing horror movies mm-hmm. in the 70s and 80s. You're kind of seen as a man child if you're as a director doing this kind of work like these guys were. Yeah. But uh, no, so I think I think you can see that there are all these factors that, you know, delay it by a day, do it earlier by a day, you know, a little bit less money, a little bit less interest. There's so many ways this shouldn't have worked. There's so many ways Freddy could have been a laughably bad sort of hodgepodge character. And not scary. And, and yeah, just not frightening, but like he really like carved out a niche for him against, again, those other sort of horror mainstay villains. And uh and made seven or eight subsequent films, maybe nine. With I think the, they're they had a remake nine. in the last couple of years. Um, Thought I read somewhere there. Hundreds nine. of millions of dollars for New Line, um, which definitely, like you know, Freddie affected the industry because without New Line, there's there's lots of other movies that wouldn't be out there, wouldn't have had the same type of distribution deal. Uh, not that like Freddie is not responsible for Lord of the Rings. I don't want you guys to infer anything from what I'm saying. Lord of the Rings would have gotten d- uh, distributed no matter what. But uh, but I, I do think it's 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 interesting how how um, fundamental he is to New Line's success as a company. Well, like you mentioned, success. Herzog and John Waters, like who mm-hmm. you never know if those guys would have had another distributor come forward at the time because they were both yeah. pretty divisive filmmakers, especially gotcha. Herzog in America. Mm-hmm. So. So another thing, and maybe this isn't a good thing, but another thing that Craven and Freddie are responsible for is arguably Johnny Depp's career. <laughs> Actually, shouldn't we say Craven's daughter is mostly responsible for Johnny Depp's yeah, career? Yeah, so, so uh, I'll link the oral history, but there's some great stuff, essentially. They're looking for someone to play Glenn. They had sort of an all-American football blonde jock in mind, and Craven had a bunch of headshots from from um, you know young actors that he was looking through, and then he asked his daughters, like, who, who would you who would you want to see in a movie out of all these? And a lot of them were established actors, but one of them was, I can't remember who, I'd have to look up the oral history again, but it was someone who knew Craven was like, oh, I know this kid, he's in a band, he wants to get into movies, uh, here's his headshot, you know, here's his information, it was Johnny Depp. And Craven was not impressed with Depp's headshot, he said he looked kind of sullen, like he was just on a, on a diet of cigarettes, uh, greasy hair, stuff like that. In right. his words, he said, "He said it looked like it looked like the kid needed a bath, and his daughters immediately picked him out of the pile of headshots. And said he's beautiful, pick him. So we can, you know, depending on how big a Pirates of the Caribbean fan you are, you can either uh, blame or credit the the daughters Craven with a, with the career of Johnny Depp. It's who, it's an oddly common reaction to Johnny Depp's headshot. I've found. Yeah." Is someone will be like that guy needs a bath? That guy I can smell that guy through the photograph. And the other person will say like that's the most beautiful man I've ever seen. Yeah, it just goes to show the divisiveness of that man. Uh, 
obviously this has been a crazy year for Johnny Depp in the media, but uh, mm-hmm. we're looking right at the very beginning of what ended up being like a, a multi-billion dollar career, right? So we're like, this is a, this is a weird first big step for an actor like this, literally coming out of nowhere and to see what he actually became over time. It is pretty surprising to look all the way back here and see like, he started in like one of the most iconic films of all time as, and he's not very good in it, to be honest. No, no, he's, he's, he's not. not a good we'll, actor. We'll talk in about it. it. Like one of my, not for the reason you may think, but one of my favorite lines in this movie is in the scene we're discussing. And, uh, <laughs> it's from, it's from, it's from Depp himself, <laughs> but we'll get that, get to that in a few minutes. Um, I don't know about you, but otherwise, I mean, we can we can chat just briefly. We talked in Scream. You brought up yourself because I think I think you were a little bit more aware of it that like Craven has this ongoing sort of idea that that pervades his movies uh, about adults being ineffectual at best, if not downright harmful. Um, And that's especially clear in this one. Yeah, I think he is one of the one of the horror filmmakers who kind of made this a foundation of horror films because it's not uncommon to see in many horror films now. It tends to give plausibility to why parents are not there to save the children uh, from the murderer. And that's a pretty, like, it's a pretty broad stroke across horror films. I will say, though, that his, the way he goes so heavy-handedly with it is pretty cool. And it, it comes off pretty funny and it gives this tone that I really love about his films, which is, Adults are useless, and they're they're blatantly useless. It's not like oh, they're just absent, or maybe they don't care. It's like they endanger the children more, as I think you put in the notes for this in this movie. Mm-hmm. So the, the sort of like origin of Freddy, uh, you know, obviously spoilers is that the parents on this street banded together to basically kill this child murderer who had gotten off on a technicality, Freddy Krueger. They burned him alive and, and, and killed him and, and, and hid his body and got rid of the evidence. And then it sort of turned Freddy into this supernatural being that would haunt the children in their dreams. So even in trying to do something, the parents do more harm than they would have otherwise. Uh, and you'll see, like, in, in sequels to this, they're still sort of reckoning with what the parents did and trying to fix it, um, uh, especially in the third one. But yeah, the parents are yeah. At, at best, you have just absent parents like the father, um, but but otherwise you have like I mean like Marge Thompson's alcoholism is laughably broad. I think in this movie there are sequences that read both like throughout the movie. I think a lot of it like the person to person stuff reads almost like an after school special. It's so heavy handed. Yeah, and then like you get to a horror sequence and you're like this movie rules. And then you get back to like Heather talking to her mom. Or talking to Glenn, and you're like, "Why? What is this? What it's am I watching?" The factory, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You know, the doctor says you have to sleep, or you'll go even crazier. I don't think you're crazy, and stop drinking that dead coffee. Uh, but yeah, so you got this quote uh, on Freddy's nature from Craven. You want to go through that? Sure, sure. I I did want to say before the quote though that something I only learned uh, like I guess yesterday when I was doing some extra research for the film is that I learned that there's originally some parts of the script, I don't know if they shot them or not, but where the parents were much more obviously like in uh, in cahoots to murder Freddy. They, I guess they right. might have had flashbacks. And even it even went as far as to suggest that Nancy had a sibling that was murdered by Freddy 
that she doesn't remember. Oh. But Craven then said that it was too audiences didn't believe that Nancy wouldn't remember a sibling, no matter how young. Mm. So he yeah. cut that part out. And that means they cut some parts, some additional parts of the parents working together to murder Freddie out of the film as well. Mm. So maybe the, maybe there, this movie would have been very different with that kind of context in as well. We'll never know. I think it's for the best. I, like, I, I, I think, think keeping it's, it's it simple. cleaner this way, right? Like, and again, as we said, like almost, almost all the stuff without Freddie is like at best, like laying track for the next nightmare sequence. So like, let's just keep it moving. This movie's nice and short and, and, and moves quickly. Um, so I, I think that's definitely a good call. Yeah. And as for this quote, um, this was a golden quote that I found. Uh, on Freddy's nature, Craven states that, in a sense, Freddy stands for the worst of parenthood and adulthood. The dirty old man, the nasty father, and the adult who wants children to die rather than help them prosper. He is the boogeyman and the worst fear of children, the adult that's out to get them. And I think this is a, uh, I don't know, a great allegory as to how he portrays the parents and then what makes Freddy so actually terrifying to the kids. Yeah, no, I think you can really tell that Craven has a lot of empathy for children. Yes. And sort of understands what their priorities are, which I think are easy to lose as you go into adulthood, right? Like you you definitely think like you'll always remember what it's like to be a kid, but that's a hundred percent not the case. And there there will be this gulf. But between like what he what his what shows up in his scripts and his movies and also how he works with his uh like teenage casts yeah, and yeah. young casts, Delhi's great he was great with that age and uh really like sort of unique I'd say across his um his range of movies, especially if you watch some of the other ones like People Under the Stairs, things like that. They're yeah. always concerned with these sort of younger priorities. And uh if you think about this being kind of one of his no, well he did work with young people before, but in terms of horror like mostly teenage casts, or I guess we should say young twenties casts, uh, like Nightmare on Elm Street, nineteen eighty four, uh, Scream in nineteen ninety six. He's twelve years older making Scream, and the approach to how he handles his teenage actor seems to be very uh, consistent. Yeah, consistent with how he works with his crew, but updated like, like the kids in Scream don't seem outdated in what they're interested in or what their lives are like. I just so it's not like he was empathy no, 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 to no. the youth characters, I guess. No, no, I, I'm, I'm agreeing and just saying as well, like Craven didn't, when he made nightmare be like, I understand kids and that's it. And then made scream with the exact same types of characters. I think he probably lined up, you know, characters, um, uh, Sydney and, uh, and Nancy, like they're, they're, they're different people and they're from different ages and they have different priorities and different desires and things like that. Um, I mean, on that note, I do think Nancy's an interesting, you know, she becomes the main character just like as, as with Scream, uh, Craven kills off Tina, kills off um, Drew Barrymore uh, early on in the movie after you sort of get, you start thinking like, okay, this is my main character. Uh, Nancy's very, a rather interesting one because, uh, and Langenkamp herself uh, sort of spoke on this, saying that she likes it. Nancy doesn't have a cool haircut. Um, she's not particularly popular. She does. She's not skilled at anything in particular. She does sort of have like you know she's got this cute boyfriend Glenn, but like otherwise she's fairly typical. God, I look twenty years old. And doesn't really have anything where you're like, oh well, that that that's what makes her a star worth being the main character. I think I think that is interesting. It's interesting that she thinks of it like that. Usually actors think much more highly of their characters than uh, the script does. 
she seemed to like how plain Nancy was. Uh, I I don't disagree, but I also don't think Nancy is as plain as Langenkamp's making her out to be. Mm. But I do think that having a, you know, uh, I even I read a quote something similar where uh, either Craven or Langenkamp said that she was like a girl next door type, mm-hmm. and that character that type of character that very relatable or uh, easy to understand character tends to really work well in horror films where like going back to the original point we were making at the beginning of the episode today you need to be able to relate and be in the same shoes as your character or at least feel like you know someone like that character and in nancy's mm. case i felt i feel like that's an easy uh thread to tie as an audience yeah. member well and the other thing that it that it incorporates is that like nancy can't be um sexually active because like this very much follows that horror trope where you know tina tina has sex rod rod has sex and they tina is killed almost immediately rod dies later um you know it's that it's a thing that more established by mike myers especially jason i think is that yeah if you're if you're sexually active you gotta die it's a horror movie yeah is there's a there's a there's a system of values placed atop everything there's almost like a i guess it has created this canon in horror where the final mm-hmm. girl is all of these things. But I really don't think it lasted that long as a period of time. I really think it's just these fundamentals. Like we said, the trifecta of yeah. Michael Myers, uh, Freddie and Jason kind of were able to, they had the stereotype exist in these films, but they, I don't mm-hmm. really see that trope carried out uh, 100% in many other horror films like this, whether they're slasher films or more modern examples. I st- you don't really see the stereotype like it is projected upon the genre. It does feel more iconic as a trope than it does seem to appear in horror movies that I've watched. Mm-hmm. You know, but I also wonder like how many like TV horror movies like in the pre VHS era that these filmmakers were sure. watching, where it's sure, just sure. like you know a bunch of bunch of kids uh, are getting laid and they all get killed by like a very boring slasher and that's it. You know. But, on and on and on and, and, and on. And part of me understands that, well, obviously there's a lot that I haven't seen from that era, especially the TV movie era. But mm-hmm. a lot of it just makes me think that people just are always remembering the Friday the 13th movies because those, those are the movies where I think of that happening in. It's almost yeah. across the board, all the Friday the 13th movies, that's the plot. Yeah, that's true. No, so I mean, I don't, I don't know. Like that—that's sort of what we have going on in this one. I think the the last thing we should talk about before we hop into our scene, because we don't get to talk about all of them, are the phenomenal effects in this movie. Yeah, I know I said I wasn't going to mention number three very much today, but I will say that the effects don't seem as uh, restrained in the third part of the franchise. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are so many more dynamic effects and a lot more of the set pieces are built around effects but i think all that was inspired by what craven did in this original film which was do what he could with the budget they had to make really ingenious effects Uh, i don't know if i mentioned it yet but they only had a effects team of about six people doing all this and from one of the quotes i read from craven apparently they would have three different shoot like three shoots happening simultaneously at times like to capture like effects and be and uh like the b-roll and mm-hmm. uh the uh sorry the second unit shooting something else yeah they apparently at some times they literally had three shoots going on same production lot same house just to make That's... up time and budget 
that's an absolute mess. Yeah. And uh, like, again, that, that like a movie like this came out of it is so impressive because there's so many great effects. None of them. I don't think at this point, like, you know, at our age, um, in this year and what we know about horror movies, I don't think any of them feel like I have no idea how they did that. It's more just like, oh, that's a great idea of something to do there. Exactly. Right? Like whether it's, the it's weird smart. sort of movement of when Freddy's uh, uh, arms go super long and they just expand. But, like, you can see that, like, England isn't moving. And, like, in the shot before, he's walking towards her and he spreads his arms. And then you can tell that, like, the effect was limited. Like, they can't have him walk while he while they expand his arms. But isn't it right? funny it that be that's very carefully done. the first visual we ever see of Freddy? Mm-hmm. And no one ever really remembers the super extendo arms. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I I love them because again, like, there are some rough edges to most of the effects in this, but they're all they're all like they're all fun. They're all good ones. Like I remember, like the when I first saw this movie, I laughed right out loud when Freddy like goes like, "Watch this," and he chops off a bunch of his own fingers, and I was like, "That's dumb, right? Like that's that's just stupid." And like, but it was it's lots of fun. Right. And I like, whereas like other ones I find like scarier where like he cuts open his own chest and like maggots come out. You know, uh, there are some effects we'll talk about that are in this, the scene that we're going to do. Um, but even like the bottomless bathtub or the, yeah. the bed that that Johnny Depp and the TV get pulled into. Right. And all and like the latter of which is a part of this rotating set where I'm sure a whole bunch of their money went to. Right. Yeah, once again, the fact that six people made a rotating room set is beyond me. I don't know how mm-hmm. you don't... Ha- I don't know how you do that without a massive team. Yeah. Um, this but, was for Tina's death sequence, where there's yes. basically like a blood geyser. Oh, that, um, that's uh, Glenn's death. Oh, wait. That's Depp. Right, right, right. Or, or, sorry. So, so, yeah. So, sorry, I conflated two things. Tina's death sequence, she gets, like, pulled up to the ceiling... So they're using yes, the rotating yes. room. And then it's later with depths where essentially I had read that like they sort of justified the budget for the rotating room because they're like, we can use it again right. with Glenn's sequence, right? So they redress it as Glenn's bedroom and do the same thing where they pour. I saw estimates from 300 to 500 gallons of fake blood. That's insane. And that I guess the first time they did it, it all went in the wrong direction and it went over all the electrical systems. And just, like, blew every breaker. And so you had, like, Craven and the camera operator were strapped into these chairs that are bolted into the thing so that the camera, you know, maintains its perspective as you rotate the room. And I guess they just got covered in the blood and everyone assumed they got electrocuted and died. Right? It was just, like, an absolute calamity. (laughs) Uh, But everyone survived. I mean, not the characters, but the actors and the crew and and Wes. Um just just a great effect. And then I wonder, are there any others that aren't in our scene? Well, I, oh, I just or... I wanted to also share my praise for the uh, bottomless bathtub with the his claw coming up. That's just an absolutely iconic shot. And it looks so good because of the just the way they frame the shot. You obviously mm-hmm. know that the bathtub extends beyond like behind the camera where you're looking from. And that's the only way you could execute the shot like that. But yeah. you're still like, wow, this is great trickery of space. The shot looks it's amazing, so and it's incredibly threatening and vulnerable. Yes. Yeah. So I, I've always no. loved that shot. 
yeah, we that's one we considered doing for our scene, but the sequence itself is rather short. We'd end up yeah. just talking about like, well, yeah, a bottomless bathtub over a, a swimming pool, you know, the camera trickery with the claw coming out between her legs, the the th- the themes at play there. But like, no, it, it, that is that is a killer shot. And then mm-hmm. I think there there are one or two other effects that we're saving for our shout outs. Yeah. Yeah. So we can move yeah. on. I will. Oh, actually, you know, what? Yeah. I did read that the tongue phone stunt Craven said that that was his favorite apparently because it cost the crew yeah. five bucks that's i mean you love to see it love to right see it. you love to see a well-used budget <laughs> five dollar tongue phone bring it on any yeah. day Hello? yeah uh yeah i mean with that if you want to hop into the scene uh takes away there tay yeah let's do it um so today we're gonna cover the first time that Nancy goes into the dream willingly, I guess the scene takes place from a 34, 37 to 42, 40. It's about a eight minute sequence, give or take. And in this scene, Nancy enlists the help of Glenn to help her find the mysterious claw fingered man from her dreams, but she gets more than she bargains for. So Glenn falls asleep. Uh, obviously the scene stars Heather Lankenkamp, Johnny Depp, and that's Freddy Krueger, Robert Englund. Yeah, no, this is a great sequence, I think, because, uh, I mean, one of the things we can talk about if you sort of look at the arc of this sequence is Nancy is, you know, she knows that she has to stay awake, but she's also like, she can't just be on the defensive with Freddy, so she needs some information. She wants to go looking for him. I'm going to go and look for somebody, and I want you to stand like a, a sort of a guard, okay? Um, but I think like the movie is still at a place where you're just kind of like, what is the dream? Where is like when people are getting, when Tina gets killed, is Freddie invisible? Is he, is he in the real world? None of this stuff has been super well established. So it's all sort of up in the air still. So her plan is she's going to go looking for someone and she wants Glenn played by Johnny Depp to help her. And then it cuts to the next scene in this sequence and she's walking down the street. Right. And I think it's it's sort of like edited in a way where you can sort of be like, okay, are we in a dream now? But then she's like, Glenn, are you still watching? Yeah, so I'm just checking. And he hops out from behind a tree and you're like, oh, okay, they must be in the real world. At least that's what I think. Like you've mentioned several times today, this scene specifically feel like this cut feels like a TV movie Mm -hmm. commercial cut where she's like, let me tell you the plan. And then it like does the black like fade to black almost. Yeah, yeah. And then it comes back and she's walking down it the fades street. Up. Yeah. The way that you put your audience in the mindset that this is a dream state kind of movie, this is how you do it. You make a kind of jarring cuts because mm-hmm. as it's famously noted in the movie Inception, you never remember where you start in the dream. You just kind of end up at that spot. And I feel like mm-hmm. this movie it embodies all those qualities of a true dream state. Down to the fact but you never I, see the people fall asleep, which would have got very yeah. tiresome over time if we had to watch everybody fall asleep. Mm-hmm. No, but I, 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 but again, I love that the sequence, it makes it a little bit unclear because I it do does. think, yeah, all, there are all those like non-spoken signifiers where you're like, this feels dreamy. But then you're like, I know that the, the established goals are Nancy's going to look for someone. Glenn is going to help. And it feels dreamy. And then she's like, Glenn, are you still there? And he hops out and he's like, yeah, so. Yeah. And you're like, okay, that doesn't seem very dreamy. 
And then she goes to the jail and she sees Freddy enter um, Rod's cell. I do feel that that is a pretty unnatural moment, though. I know I'm watching I, it having seen this many times, but I when he jumps out, I'm like, oh, that's like borderline funny because that's almost how it would come off in a dream. You'd, you just assume the person that you're looking for is right behind mm-hmm. you. You look back and they pop out of the bush and there they are. Yeah, I just think what's at play is that when she's like, I'm going to go looking for someone, you're like, in your dream? I don't think that's the first thing. Like, the first time you're watching this right. is what you expect. So they, they maintain this uncertainty to it until, of course, like, they once Freddy's come back to the bedroom with her and he's attacking her and she's trying to wake up Glenn, et cetera, et cetera. Like, but I think there are all these ways it blurs the line, which is great. Um, but also, yeah, as you said, like, they there are these things that it does that, sort of give you a stronger hints that you're in a dream. Um, one of which is like Tina does this too, but like the dream running where like people, you know, you can't run in a dream. You got that horrible feeling where you're just kind of like moving through molasses. So like, you'll see Langenkamp like doing this like half run away from the camera when it's Freddie's perspective. And I mean, another one of my favorite effects is like the, the, the gooey stairs it, I think it's like, one, it's my second favorite effect in the movie to only to yeah. the knife in the bathtub, the knife fingers in the bathtub. No, you have it, you have it as marshmallow <laughs> stairs, but my research said it was like an oatmeal mix. No, I I didn't actually know what it was consisted of. I just thought it. I always thought it looked oh, like that marshmallow was your stairs. Yeah, but I love it, right? It's so because like she gets inside and the music cuts and it does kind of belie the sense of safety, and then like she gets on the stairs and immediately can't make any progress and she's being slowed down. Once and, again, you know, very Freddy dreamy. smashes, yeah, and Freddy smashes through the window, and he's wearing Tina's face and speaking with her voice, which is fantastic. It's kind of Michael Myersy for a minute, right? But he, um, the way it's done, he Freddy has this way of making things comical, at least to my sensibilities, in the mm-hmm. sense that he's intentionally messing with his victim before he kills them. Yeah. Uh, whether it's you can tell he's having fun or with it. he's just having fun yeah. exactly so which the other boogeymen they're not having fun they're like on a mission or they're compelled at like a a preternatural level yeah which goes back to what we were talking about with him being this embodiment of a child's worst fear as this in uh this insane adult figure who's out to get them with no mercy mm-hmm. right i and i think all this goes hand in hand with like his uh I'll call it sense of humor and where he does things like take Tina's face, put it over his and imitate her voice. Like, which is, mm-hmm. uh, which is a pretty dark joke. Nancy, help me please. Save me from And it's not a convincing disguise. It's not like a tactic no. where he's like, now she'll let me in. Yeah, Cause yeah. I've got Tina's face. Right. No, it's like, you know, like he's like, he's like, this is, he's like, this is a goof. Like, and, and his, Freddie's sick sense of humor, I think, suggests a, a level of confidence in what he's doing that is also frightening. Because you're like, this guy isn't worried about me getting away. He's having fun with it. I'm I'm in real trouble, right? Because yeah. he's not even he doesn't need like he. You never see Freddie sprint. Maybe is the simplest way to put it. Freddie's in no rush. You know, he's got he's got a couple gags he wants to do. He's got five minutes. He's got to try, you know, some new stand up and then he's going to murder the kid. In all fairness, right? you never see any of the masked killers in any of these movies run. This is true. Sprinting isn't really a good villain look. No, I think. No, your mask um, would be bouncing around and yeah. Um, 
but I mean, yeah, no. See, so yeah, that I mean, another another solid effect. I think probably a good a, a good chunk of the budget went towards the man hours on rotoscoping Freddy as he passes through the the jail bars. It's a um, pretty seamless effect it, for something mm-hmm. from 1984. That's really good looking. Yeah, yeah, it's real good. Um, it's not. I mean, you got, Terminator you got too, Tina but... as like a cadaver nun. I kind of really like the way that she's. Tina's pose. She's got the sort of one hand up, like a like a fresco, like a religious painting, and she's she's in the body bag, which is kind of like a habit. And then, you know, they've got the the snakes in the mud around her feet, and the the centipede insert shot, which is fantastic. Always unsettling, right? The body bag was an excellent uh, choice by who, if that was in the script or just was part of the production or costume design. I thought that was an excellent choice. It's really simple. It's really cheap. It's iconic, and it's really traumatic to the character who he's trying to traumatize, which in this case mm-hmm. is Nancy. So I think yeah. for all those reasons, the body bag look is fantastic, and combining that with uh, pretty guttural, instinctive reactions to things like giant worm snakey things and centipedes, mm-hmm. it's pretty disgusting, and you feel it in your body. You feel it viscerally. And also, like, so many of the things in this movie, they just... Freddy just keeps taking on additional dimensions because there isn't like there is this strict iconography where he's like, he's, you know, the centipede guy. It's always centipedes or it's always maggots. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's whatever. He's controlling the dream. He's going to scare you however he can. And sometimes that means his arms are super, super long. Sometimes it means he's going to cut off his own fingers. Sometimes it means he's going to slash open his chest and maggots are going to pour out like it's just he's just doing anything and everything and there are no sort of bounds on his on his character and his ability and the ways that he tries to mm-hmm. affect his his uh his targets which is just once again a testament to how strong of a concept this movie has it mm-hmm. it fundamentally you can do so many things plausibly with this premise and that just makes it fantastically uh uh, buildable you can always add more layers to this dimension and that's why i think some of the sequels to this end up a lot better than sequels to say halloween or friday Mm -hmm. the 13th or texas chainsaw massacre well yeah i i feel like you can see without it being overwrought you can see the work on display where you can tell they're like listen we got this much money what's some things we can do keeping in mind that this is a guy in a dream and he can do whatever he wants. It's like, well, what if his arms expanded? What, how, how could we do that? What's the, what's the effect? How much would it cost? What if we did this? What if we did this? And you can see them just sound like kitchen sink, throwing spaghetti at the wall, like whatever works. And it does work. I think all the choices that they do make are, are great. And some of them are goofier than they are scarier. But I think there's a, there's a sense of classic horror movie schlock at play in this while still having that real smart nugget of a premise. Yeah. Which just makes it work to, in, for me, at least I, I don't know. Where does this stand for you? If we say, let's say Friday, the 13th part two, Halloween, the original, and this one, like is, this is by far my favorite out of the three. Um, I think I like Halloween better, Yeah, but like this, this movie's so much more fun. That's what I mean. Right? Like, 100%, like, if I'm, like, if it's, if we're hanging out on Halloween and someone's like, where are we going to watch? You're like, yeah, we could watch Halloween itself. And, like, it, it'll it be good. It, like, no denying it. It's a fundamentally great movie. Same with Friday the 13th Part 2. Like, you know, you see some classic scares. But, like, this, this movie's more fun. 
right? And more fun, like, I think, especially in a group setting, I think you can make fun of, like, the after-school special parts. Yeah, that's And then that's enjoy the Freddy parts. Uh, but, like, and visually this is such a nice fun. counterpoint to, like, last week, even, because, like, this opposite ends of the horror movie spectrum is, you know, the three hours I had to sit through for Suspiria and, like, the German history lesson. Yeah. And then this is, like, he's a burned guy with knives for fingers, and he haunts people in their dreams. What else do you need to know? Get off my back. <laughs> Right. right. <laughs> it's such a strong premise. Like, yeah, I th- like if you're ranking them outright, I think it's Halloween, then Nightmare, then Friday. But I'm probably more likely to put on Nightmare than the other two, mm-hmm. which should say something about that ranking itself. Yeah. And th- well, that's, that All was going to be my point, because I, I just wanted yeah. to come back to how fun this movie is because of its ability to always build on the character of Freddy Krueger and the dreamscape setting. There's a couple of points I wanted to mention, too. I just, once again, reinforcing the idea of the dream state. Freddy visiting Rod, and then you kind of see it's that classic mo- monster movie moment where she looks away, looks back, and then he's gone. He pops out of the mm-hmm. bushes. It's like the the transition from space to space really seamlessly mm-hmm. in the dream state works really well here. Um, I think uh, just... The, omin- the ominous nature of how he kind of is looking at Rod in that moment, too, always has creeped me out. It's one of, like, the more mm-hmm. subtle, creepy moments of Freddy, and I think that's worth noting in the scene, too. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there are tons of time like, they introduce Freddy on a sequence-by-sequence basis in so many different ways. That makes him feel a little bit unpredictable and a little bit undefined in a good way. Right, like in this sequence, the first time you see him, he just sort of strolls into the prison cell, mm-hmm. and he's got the hat down to the camera because the camera's uh, pointed down from like through the recessed window, and he just sort of strolls in. But other times, he will pop out from behind a tree or pop out of the bush, like he does ten seconds later. <laughs> the way that he will bring himself into an environment just seems to be a whim of his own again suggesting that confidence and that control and not as that like you're in freddy's world he's he's putting on a show and it's never really predicated upon a uh, a really basic jump scare oftentimes it's paired with a musical cue when he jumps out Mm -hmm. but i don't find it's a it's got like this the the sound isn't being sucked out only to be blown back in your face with a jump yeah it's it's really much it's much more tame than that in the sense that mm-hmm. it fits the dream setting because it is supposed to be more unpredictable than reality. So I feel like yeah. it just works on so many levels uh, to make this seamless and plausible. Uh, going, I wanted to mention it when you said something earlier. It's It kind of throws off your whole idea of what Freddy is and what he's capable of. I think when you first mm. see Tina being murdered... And you understand, okay, like, at least in my head, I think I remember being like, okay, she's being killed in her dream. But then you see Freddy under the covers with her. There's a brief yeah. moment where you see him in the bed with her under the covers. Mm-hmm. And, ro- and then it cuts and rods outside the covers looking. And there's, like, an invisible force that's, like, picking her up. And, like, you see the cuts open on her chest. Yeah. So then you're like... But it is that visual oh, is of Freddy. is he not a nightmare? Is he, like, is his power, he's invisible? Yes. Right? Exactly. Like, it is, like, they leave it, like to be defined later and this movie itself only vaguely defines that like he he's in the dream and then i mean he gets pulled out of the dream but then in sequels it's like well he's kind of many different things right and again it's like he's whatever he needs to be yeah to keep the sequels going yeah 
And <laughs> I, I will just say, yeah, if you're going to watch any of the sequels, there's very few you should watch. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll touch on, touch on what we'd recommend. Um, but no, I mean, one other thing, last thing for me for this sort of sequence I want to talk about, is just that like, you know, Johnny Depp, um, mm. Sucks. He's got, like, among uh, a couple key contenders, I think he's got the worst acted line in the movie. And it's... So you've got this after-school special back-and-forth shot reverse between Nancy and Glenn where she's just asking him a bunch of questions. Did you have any weird dreams last night? Slept like a rock. Do you believe in the boogeyman? No. Rod killed Tina, and you know that. And he's like, no. Yes. No. I don't know. I slept like a rock. But his line was, so she says, Do you believe that people can dream about what's going to happen? No. There's this pause, and he leans back in the chair and goes, No. And it's just like, it's like it was his first line on set in the entire shoot. They're just like, All right, Johnny, just give us like uh, a no. And he's like, all right, I'll give you precisely that and nothing more. No, that pregnant pause was everything, man. <laughs> hey, at least he made a choice. He made I an suppose. acting choice. Not a great he one, made... but he did. He's an actor now. He's an actor. <laughs> did, he's he Johnny Depp, the actor. He's an actor now. Yeah. Man. Yeah. That's all else I, I, yeah, that's all else I, yeah, that's all else I, that's, that's. That's the rest of what I had to, to say about that scene. Uh, well, I wanted to mention, too, because um, we mentioned the... I don't even actually know if we talked about the specific part in Scream, but it's funny how Craven did this scene so similarly to how he does the first scene with Sydney in Scream, where Skeet mm-hmm. Ulrich comes to her window, uh, and yeah. then she kind of has to push him back out the window, where he waits until the her parent, her dad leaves, and it's almost the, the exact yeah. same scene here where uh, Glenn is on the rose bush outside. Did you ever stand on a rose trellis in your bare feet? Then he comes into the room and then is kicked out. And I think even they have the same beat of bumping their head on the way out or something. Mm-hmm. It's it's very, very, very similar. And it all is rem- reminiscent of the after school special stuff that we've already mentioned so many times today. Yeah. It's, it's quite Definitely funny. some echoes in, in Craven stuff. Yeah. And I, but it's in, intentional. In general, it's intentional. Uh, yeah. In general, a great scene, again, for, like, how it establishes and obfuscates the dreamscape and the idea of whether or not you're in a dream or not, which, again, is core to dreams themselves often. Um, and uh, some killer effects and um, uh, maybe not for the reason you think, but some notable performances, uh, especially from <laughs> a, a young Mr. Depp. <laughs> yeah, I'll say in conclusion, just I think a movie that, takes place or is able to even just use the state of dreams as its main premise will inherently be cinematic because it's so hard Mm -hmm. to translate to any other art form and for almost a century now people have been equating the way we watch movies with how we dream because that's kind of how we came up with conventional editing systems and continuity in film is because we are able to relate to how we dream um, mm-hmm. There's a lot more to that than I'm going into right now, but uh, without being douchey, it's always been a part of cinema to be equated to yeah. dream states. Yeah, we'll 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 talk about David Lynch soon. <laughs> we'll talk more more about dreams then. Sure. Um, but in the meantime, we'll get to some shout outs. Uh, I'm shouting out the Freddy car because like I, something I've touched on a lot here. This movie's pretty goofy. You never know what Freddy's gonna do. And I think this is the funniest version of that, where the, the sort of s- surprise twist ending where all the kids are alive. They're going to go 
drive around in a car and just sort of like have a great time. It's oddly foggy. You don't know what's going on. And then the car roof comes up and it's colored like Freddy's sweater. So I guess this was a compromise. Yeah, Craven's original ending was that Nancy just sort of like, you know, the power of dreams. She's like, I know that you're not real, Freddy. And she denies him his sort of identity or her recognizing him. And he just fades away, which is like, not a great ending. I don't think it would have been good. I think it would have been... It's way too cheesy. Very after school. Too simple. So, good idea that they didn't do that. But, like, Bob Shay's ending was that they do the car thing, but then Freddy's driving the car, and he drives away with them. Which also is like, I don't know, I guess so. This compromise also, I think on paper, is not a great ending. It's very weird. Like, Freddy's a car now? What is this? What are we doing? I just, I love it because it exists. It's that kind of thing where you're like, you flip a coin, you know, a hundred times, you're going to get a generally even distribution of heads and tails. This feels like the one time the coin landed on its edge and stayed standing. They're like, yeah, yeah, that's the ending. That's, that's, that's what we're going with. <laughs> I, I actually do like the car part of the ending, but I always laugh out loud when Marge gets sucked through the window. Because it cuts to that dummy getting sucked through the window, yeah. which not not particularly humanistic. It's it's <laughs> it makes me laugh out loud almost every time, no matter what. Yeah. I know it's coming, and I just can't wait. But I I think yeah. what works for me in the final car sequence is the music, and yeah. uh, I I have always noted the, the dream sequences in the film are foggy, and they they didn't mm. even need to say it in the dialogue. They do, but it's like a sunny but foggy morning. And I thought that yeah, that which it, is unnecessary. It, it works. <laughs> like I, I like the vibe of the final scene. I just, I get what you're saying. Like, yeah. is Freddie a car now or something? Like that's a little it's bit ridiculous. It's so goofy. But, and I'm, I'm a big fan. But it's, it like, works it's, for it's, me. It's, I like it's, it. It's a real mic drop where they're just, it's a mic drop, but like someone like drops the mic and walks off stage. You're like, that's what they mic dropped on. Yeah. I mean, I, I respect the attitude, but like, <laughs> okay. Weird, weird flex, bro. You know, that's a, that's a good comparable. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and then yeah, uh, Tay, what's uh, what's what's your shout out? Mine's nice and simple. I'm just gonna call it one of the effects that I love the most because I love when movies do this kind of effect, which is the stretchy walls, and they. I love the stretchy wall. Yeah, how it stretches over her, and you see like the, and it, you know it's so you overused. See the claws. You see the claws, and I feel like this is something overused in very simple, simplified horror films now, where it's you know, mm-hmm. like a demonic force pushing against something like fleshy, but no, to, yeah. to me, this is, uh, this is much more clever because the crop, the crucifix falls off the wall first. Then you see the actual mm-hmm. manipulation of the wall. And then she puts the crucifix back up on the wall. And I think just, uh, it's a classic magician's trick where you kind of reinforce the idea like, Oh, you see, it's, it's a hard surface. It's, yeah. That it's, she can put it back up is such a smart touch. Yes. Right. Because you're like, you're like, well, clearly she wouldn't be able to because it's like, you know, it's it's cellophane or whatever, whatever the effect, some sort of rubber plastic. Yeah. And then she puts the, the cross back up and it fits and you're and like they add a little sound effect mm-hmm. of like it hitting like plaster. Yep. And yeah, it's very smart, very simple, Just, super effective. Yep. That's and when we talk about simplicity and low budget filmmaking being genius, this is what we're talking about. This is so simple down to the two locked off shots that it happens in. Um, I just love this moment uh, really early in the movie too. Yeah, that's a fantastic one. That's one that definitely, if you didn't shout it out, I would have. Um, 
And then, yeah, so, I mean, that's that's our shout-outs. Before we go to our recommendations, we will just say we're uh, next week we're doing Tay's Pick. We're doing Texas Chainsaw Massacre from 1974, which um, looks like you can stream it on Tubi. T-U-B-I. I'm not familiar. Too many streaming platforms out there. Uh, but you can rent it at a real low price, uh, $2.99 on Google Play. What? Come on, guys. That's a, that's a steal. Yeah, please, you can please buy just it for rent 10 it. Bucks. Don't watch it with ads on Tubi. Yeah. Or not to be. Um, or, okay, Tay. Uh, it, yeah, it was not to be. Watch it. Uh, rent it. You know, find yourself a Blu-ray, something like that. Uh, and we'll be back here next week to talk about it. Uh, and with that, our recommendations, as we alluded to many times, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors, directed by Chuck Russell from 1987, is my recommendation. As Tay mentioned, like you can tell, they had more budgets and they could do bigger effects. And the effects are so good in this movie. This movie's... Again, lots of fun. My understanding, I haven't seen it, is that the sequel is, like, its cardinal sin is that it's no fun. It's all, like, science of, like, dreams and sleep, and they take it way more seriously, and then... It doesn't operate with the same rules for Freddy either, which is the the biggest travesty, in my opinion. Yeah. Well, and then, but then in Dream Warriors, it's set in like a uh, like a mental a mental institute for like these kids who are all struggling with dreams and like and like you know basically considering suicide as a alternative to dealing with Freddy. Uh, a young Patricia Arquette, uh, Heather Langenkamp is back. Uh, it's fantastic movie. I had so much fun watching it. If you like the if you like the one we talked about today, definitely watch Dream Warriors as well. I would say you're really safe to skip number two. Uh, just watch one and three and then new nightmare and you'll find yeah. you'll you'll thank me later yeah they're fantastic uh tay what do you got okay so i was surprised i haven't actually suggested this one before based on the amount of horror we cover on this pod but uh, i'm gonna do a 2006 film by director scott glosserman called behind the mask the rise of leslie vernon uh it, it, impossible to never mention this movie on our podcast because it embodies mm-hmm. so much of what we love about the horror genre and it's not a parody by any means it's a clever it's a clever recontextualization of the slasher movie in this movie mm-hmm. the slasher killer leslie vernon allows a documentary crew to follow him around as he plots his next killing spree and the meta nature of the film and the postmodernism really allow this movie to flourish it's quite funny it's quite scary uh mm-hmm. has good effects uh really good tone throughout and i remember watching this and being and not understanding how i had missed it for so many years so highly recommend if you haven't seen it behind the mask the rise of leslie vernon quite an interesting take and you have robert england as the monster hunter in this movie so it kind of comes full yeah. circle and it's quite reflexive in that way too so it's a lot of fun Absolutely. Yeah, you can stream that on Amazon Prime's AMC Plus channel, or you can rent it. Uh, It's on Google and YouTube and Apple. Uh, Definitely check it out. That's another one that I hadn't seen it, uh, and then Tay recommended it. I think I actually watched it with you, Yeah, we watched it together. Um, Yeah, great time, fantastic movie, so I I doubled down on that recommendation. But with that, we're done with our Nightmare on Elm Street episode. Thank you so much for voting this one in. I'm glad we got to talk about Freddy, because, I mean, last year I realized we did Carpenter and didn't do halloween yeah um yeah but we did two fantastic horror movies anyway as we've done so far plus my bonus last week and we got taste coming up next week but in the meantime check the show notes you can see where you can follow us uh leave us a good review and on uh apple podcasts uh spread the word about us 
Get in touch with us on Instagram to let us know what you watch every week. We do a weekly roundup on Sundays. Uh, and otherwise, I, I don't know, sweet dreams. <laughs> <laughs>